Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7. Um, as you're turning, I do want to talk about something sort of as a, by way of introduction, something I've alluded to repeatedly, but I haven't, I haven't gone into it a bunch. But um, I've said many times that the writers of the Hebrews understood that the Old Testament points forward to, to Jesus. And I really want to stress that just as an introduction this morning. So, uh, for example, we've talked about how the Old Testament sacrificial system, a sacrificial system, the temple, the priesthood, all of this was pointing forward to the Messiah, to Jesus. The same is true with Old Testament accounts, historical accounts. They weren't just random events. The purpose, God orchestrated it such that the purpose of those Old Testament events was to point forward to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. So, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, Old Testament characters, events, the purpose of all this was to point forward to their greater fulfillment in Christ. And Jesus himself repeatedly said this. I think we've got some slides. I just want to show you just a few verses. Um, but it shows the importance of Jesus talking about how these Old Testament things point forward to him. So yeah, this is Luke 24. This is the Road to Emmaus account. And Jesus said, said this, he said to the to, to two disciples, he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then look at verse 27 here of Luke 24. Look at verse 27. It says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So it says, beginning with Moses, what did Moses write? First five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the prophets wrote the rest of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through the Old Testament, all of that was pointing forward to him, pointing forward to Christ, okay? the things concerning himself. Here's another one, Matthew 5, 17, and we may have a number of slides, but this is Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so Jesus himself said that he came to fulfill the Old Testament law and the prophets, the ceremonial law. He, all this was pointing forward to Christ. John 8, 56, yeah, we've got that. Jesus said, your he's talking to these, the Pharisees, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus is saying, Abraham looked forward to the day when the Messiah, Jesus, would come, and Abraham was happy thinking about the Messiah coming, thinking about Jesus coming. John, uh, there's a couple of passages I think we've got from John 5. This is just one chapter in John 5, 39 and 46, yeah. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, he's talking to the Pharisees, I think, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and look at what he says, and it is they that bear witness about me, that's what Jesus is saying, same chapter, verse 46, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, okay, 
All of this is pointing forward to Christ. We don't have it, but in Matthew, if you want to go look up Matthew 12, Jesus said this. He said that Jonah pointed to himself. He, Jesus said that Jonah being three days and three nights, this historical event, Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, that was pointing forward to the fact that Jesus would be three days and three nights buried in the earth. But then Jesus said that he's the greater, greater than Jonah. Same chapter, Jesus says that Solomon pointed forward to Jesus. And that he, while Solomon's wisdom was great, Jesus says about himself that he, he is greater than Solomon. He says someone greater than Solomon is standing right here. Okay? Also, in our study of Hebrews 7, we've talked about how Melchizedek, this intriguing figure from Genesis 14, Melchizedek pointed forward to Jesus who is our king and priest. So Melchizedek was a king and priest, and Jesus is a king and priest. Again, the Old Testament ceremonial laws, all this points forward to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you to look for Christ in the Old Testament. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see Jesus in the Old Testament when you read it. I I promise you, it'll really grow you in your confidence in God's word, And it'll grow you in your love for the Lord. It's really, really wonderful. All right, let's turn to Hebrews 7. We're going to look at verses 20 to 28. And then we're going to walk through the passage verse by verse. But let's first read the whole thing. This is Hebrews 7, 20 to 28. So the context is, the writer has been saying that Jesus is, again, the the greater than the Old Testament priesthood. And he's a better hope. And he said, and we talked about last time how through Jesus we draw near to God. Then in verse 20, he transitions. He's talking about Jesus being our high priest. Verse 20. He said, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. From Psalm 110, verse 4. That's what the writer has been saying over and over again about that passage, Messianic prophecy about the Messiah. Psalm 110, 4. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, for it it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right, we're going to break this passage up into three sections. Okay, first we're going to cover verses 20 to 22. It's about God's oath. Then we'll look at verses 23 to 25, which is about Jesus holding his priesthood permanently. And then we'll look at verses 26 to 28, which is a comparison of Jesus' priesthood to the Old Testament priests, okay? So let's look back at verses 20 to 22. This is about God's oath. 
And the context is this. The writer is talking about Jesus becoming our high priest and bringing us near to God, okay? And he says this. Again, this is Hebrews 7, verses 20, 22. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and again, this is Psalm 110, verse 4, Messianic prophecy, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So this is saying that when God the Father promised that the Messiah Jesus would be a high priest forever, when God, when the Father promised that Jesus would be installed as the eternal high priest, when God made this promise, he confirmed it with an oath. The Father made this promise with an oath. That's what this section is about, this Psalm 110 verse 4. So God swore, and he said he would not change his mind. This is forever. That Jesus would be a high priest. He's a forever high priest. So the Father made this promise with an oath. So in the Old Testament, what this is saying, when a Levite was made the high priest, God did not make an oath. So there were, there were, they were made a high priest through Old Testament regulations. There was a ceremony and stuff, but there was no oath by God. And of course, God did not swear to any Old Testament priest that his priesthood would be forever. But God the Father gave an oath to Jesus here in Psalm 110.4. That's what it's quoting here in, in Hebrews 7. That, that, that God gave this oath that Jesus would be a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now here's the question. Why does God give an oath? Why does God give an oath? If God says something one time, we should believe it, right? If God says anything even once, we should grasp hold of that by faith. We should believe it without question. So why does God give an oath? Well, God gives an oath to accommodate our own weaknesses and our own doubts, our own lack of faith. In fact, if you look back at Hebrews 6, look at Hebrews 6 verse 17. Just flip back a page or so. Hebrews 6 verse 17. The writer's talking about an oath to Abraham, but he explains why on occasion, God will give an oath. So Hebrews 6, 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God gives an oath to show us more convincingly, to convince us that his promises will stand. So again, we should believe everything that God says. We should believe it by faith. But God gives oaths to accommodate us because of our lack of faith. Because we live in a world of lies, right? We live in a world where people don't keep their promises. We don't keep our own promises. We live in a world where people lie. And we're, we're accustomed to that. All of us lie. Promises are broken all the time. So God knows that about, about us and the world we live in, and he wants to accommodate us. He wants to condescend in our weakness and in our lack of faith. And what, is, what God is saying here is that he really wants you to believe that Jesus is your forever high priest. He really wants you to believe that. So when the Father says that Jesus is our high priest forever, he's saying, believe this. Like, like really pay attention here. So that's why he confirms it with an oath. William Barclay said this, and, and I love this quote. I think we've got a slide of it. Look at this quote. It's really beautiful. He said, whatever God confirms by an oath, 
becomes something so utterly unchangeable that it is woven into the very fiber of the universe and must remain forever. That is beautiful. Uh, just, leave, just leave that slide up for just for a minute, guys. It's so good. What Barclay's saying is whatever God confirms by an oath, like Jesus being our forever high priest, and Jesus drawing us near to God and loving us, and dying for us and interceding for us, all these things, God confirms by an oath that Jesus is our high priest forever, and that becomes so utterly unchangeable. It's woven into the very fiber of the universe, and it must remain forever. So God wants you to believe that and rejoice in that. Rejoice in that, church. Marinate in that for a while. That Jesus is our forever high priest. And again, the Father has confirmed that with an oath, and so now it's woven to the very fiber of the universe. So good. It's so good. And our Lord is so good to do this. He loves us so much. So that's the importance of God making an oath. All right, let's look at verse 22. Hebrews 7, verse 22. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I'm not going to spend much time on this because the writer will develop the idea fully, actually, in the next chapter in, in Hebrews 8. But I will say this just briefly, Jesus is the guarantor of the new covenant and the new covenant is God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And in the new covenant, it's a better covenant, you'll start seeing the writer keeps on talking about like better hope, better covenant, things like that. In this new covenant, this better covenant, God brings us into an intimate, loving relationship with him. And we know him truly and he loves us and we can have a personal and loving relationship with God, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the guarantor of that covenant. So Jesus is the guarantor. What does that mean? It means that through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he guarantees that all those who come to him by faith will draw near to God. That's what we saw last week, that the goal, the telos, the goal, the telos of our lives is to draw near to God. That's the purpose, the telos of our lives, to be in an intimate, loving relationship with God forever. And Jesus is the guarantor of that covenant. So Jesus promises, he guarantees by his own life that he will accomplish the goal. He'll accomplish the mission, the telos of saving his people. He guarantees with his own life that he will bring us to God. So what he's saying is you can bank on it. It's guaranteed you can bank on it. So Jesus is our forever high priest and he is guaranteed that he will do everything within his nature and everything within his power to save his people forever. And you can bank on that. You should never doubt that. All right, so that's part one, the oath, verses 20 to 22. Let's look at part two. This is Jesus' permanent priesthood and this is verses 23 to 25. And by the way, I'm, uh, you'll see why I'm, I'm talking about this, but the title of the sermon is Christ Our Intercessor. Christ Our Intercessor. And that's this section, and I'm going to cover it more at the end. So let's look at verses 23 to 25. It says this, the, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the writer is saying the former high priests from the tribe of Levi were many in number. 
It was just one high priest after another, over and over again. And why was it one after another? Because they died. They died. There were were probably hundreds of high priests during the time of the Old Testament worship. And again, it was just one high priest after another. In contrast, what the writer says in verse 24 is that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. And I would underline that word permanently. Verse 24, permanently. The, The word permanently means unchangeable, forever. So Jesus is our unchangeable high priest. He is our forever high priest. The word permanent, this is important too, the word permanent can also mean non-transferable. So there will never be another high priest. Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There will never be another priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not transferable. Jesus is the final one. And the importance of this, of this being the final one, you ever been in a church where there was a transition from one pastor to another? It can oftentimes be very difficult. When there's a change, even for us humans, with human pastors, it can be difficult and be hard because the new pastor may be lacking in wisdom or experience or he may have different beliefs or whatever. So if there's a transition, it can be rough. And what the writer is saying here is that that doesn't happen with Jesus as our high priest. He's our permanent high priest. He's the final one and his priesthood is not transferable to anybody else. So now that Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as I said, his priesthood will never be transferred. There's never going to be another priest. Jesus is the final and forever priest. Now, just as a warning, I'm going to spend a little time bashing on Mormonism for a little bit, okay? This is nothing personal. Just like last week, I bashed on Roman Catholicism a little bit because of the priesthood. I'm not, I'm not personally attacking Catholics. I have friends who are Catholic and I love them. I have Mormon friends And most Mormons I know, I'm being totally honest here, most Mormons I know are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, really. So this is not a personal attack on Mormons. But I am going to bust on Mormonism a little bit, okay? I just learned this recently. Did you know this? When you see two young men in the neighborhood on their bicycles and they've got their white shirts on and their dark ties, they come to the door and they introduce themselves. They're usually 18, 19, 20 years old. And they call themselves elders, Okay? So they'll say, hello, I'm Elder Bert, and this is Elder Ernie. Uh, (laughs) 18 or 19 years old, but they're elders in the Mormon church. And what you find is they they know almost nothing about the Bible. It's sad. But they want to talk to you about Mormonism. Here's what I've learned. Those two young men, they're taught in the Mormon church, this is what they're told, and they believe it, that they are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. Did you know that in the Mormon church? So Elder Bert and Elder Ernie, Mormon teenagers, these poor kids, again, they know nothing about the Bible, but they've been told that when they turn 18, they become priests according to the order of Melchizedek. This is blasphemy. It's absolute blasphemy. Jesus is the sinless, spotless high priest who holds his priesthood permanently. It's not transferable. He's the final priest He's the only priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and yet Mormons say that all their young men are priests according to the order of Melchizedek. It's so pathetic. It's blasphemy. Because right here in Hebrews 7, we're told in the word of God that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. It's not transferable. It's certainly not transferable to teenage Mormon kids, right? Because Jesus continues in his priesthood forever. He has an indestructible life. And God the Father has sworn that Jesus will hold his priesthood throughout 
eternity. All right, that's verse 24. Let's look at verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it says Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. That word uttermost has this idea of Jesus saving us completely. He doesn't do 99% of the work and then we add on 1% of our good works. He doesn't do that. He saves us to the uttermost. We don't add on our good deeds. Also, to the uttermost means Jesus saves us eternally. There's a temporal aspect of the uttermost. So think about that. There is a past, present, and future aspect of salvation, right? There's a past aspect of salvation. We put our faith in Christ right then. We're saved at that moment in the past. But there's also a present aspect of salvation. Right now, God is saving us because he is holding you fellow believer. He is sustaining you right now in his grace. He's holding you fast to himself right now. He's also growing you in holiness, and he's doing that right now in this moment. He is with us now, saving us, growing us, sustaining us. So so there is a present aspect of salvation. There's also a future aspect of salvation, and that's a really huge focus in the book of Hebrews, this future aspect of salvation. Because in the future, Jesus will return, it will happen, and the dead will be raised to face the final judgment. And so when Christ returns, we will stand before him. We will face the final judgment. And God's people will be saved from the wrath to come. And if you put your faith in Christ, you will be raised with a glorified body, you will have no sin, and all of God's people will live on a new earth in a new creation. So this physical earth will be made new. And that is a huge focus of the writer to the Hebrews. I love thinking about new earth and resurrection life to come. In in Lord of the Rings, you may remember this, as Gandalf said to Pippin, he's talking about death. And he said, no, the journey doesn't end here. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. And Pippin says... What, Gandalf? See what? And Gandalf says, white shores and beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. So on the new earth, in our glorified bodies, we will know only love and joy and perfect fellowship with God and with one another for all eternity. That's why Pippin then says, well, that isn't so bad. (laughs) No, it isn't. It's not too bad. This is the future aspect of salvation. And when the writer here says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, he's saying that Jesus saves us completely, past, present, and future. He saves us completely for all time. It's absolute, eternal salvation, and it's glorious. And then it says in verse 25, it says, Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. That's for us, for God's people. This is huge, but I'm actually going to talk about that at the end of the sermon, okay, about Jesus' intercession for us. All right, let's go to verses 26 to 28. These are the last few verses of the chapter. So part one was the oath, verses 20 to 22. Part two is Jesus' permanent priesthood, verses 23 to 25. And now part three is verses 26 to 28. And this is a comparison of 
priesthoods, comparison of Jesus' priesthood compared to the Old Testament priesthood. And really, this is a wonderful hymn. This little section right here is a wonderful hymn of praise to Jesus, our great high priest. Some folks have called this a hymn to our great high priest. So this is verses 26 to 28. It said, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, there's that oath again, word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I would encourage you just to spend some time meditating on these verses because what, what the writer's doing here, it's almost like he can't hold back his praise to Christ anymore. He just can't hold back. He's saying Jesus is so wonderful and so superior to anything else. Christ is just so glorious and the writer just can't hold back. I'm not going to go through each word here, but, but he says this. He said it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary that we have a high priest like Jesus. We need this kind of high priest. Verse 26, he says, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is God in the flesh, and that's why he's all these things. He's holy. He's without sin. He is pure and perfect and innocent. Jesus never committed a single sin. He never desired anything wicked. Jesus is fully human, but he doesn't have the sinful human nature that we have. So he never had any sinful motives. Also, Jesus died the death that we deserved when he went to the cross. Then he was raised from the grave in a resurrected body, showing that he defeated death and hell. And that means that we as God's people should have no fear of death and hell because Jesus has triumphed. He is victorious. He's ascended into heaven. He's, he's been exalted above the heavens, as it said, seated at the right hand of the Father. And all of this is in contrast to the weak Old Testament priests. That's what he says in verse 27, that Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He doesn't have to offer any sacrifice for his own sins because he had no sin. Also, Jesus didn't have to offer sacrifices over and over again on a daily basis because he offered his life once for all when he gave up his life as a sacrifice on the cross. In verse 28, we're again reminded of the weakness of the Old Testament priesthood. He said, for the law, the Old Testament ceremonial law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. So those Old Testament high priests, they were weak. They were subject to death. They got weak and old and died, just like all of us, but not Jesus. Jesus in his transcendence, in his glory, in his majesty is not subject to death. He's our great high priest forever. And then at the end of verse 28, it says that Jesus has been made perfect forever. You may recognize that word perfect. We've talked about that before. We talked about it last week. Again, the Greek, Greek root word is telos means goal or purpose. So Jesus has been made perfect as our high priest because he completed the goal. 
He completed the mission that he was sent on to save his people, to draw us near to God. Jesus did everything necessary to be our perfect high priest, to be the high priest that accomplished the goal. He completed the mission. He completed the telos. So he's our perfect high priest. And he's drawn us near to God. He saved us forever. This is our great high priest. So church, listen, rejoice in the fact that Jesus is our eternal high priest who saved us. He's completed the mission. He's made a way for us to draw near to God. And we will be with our Lord forever. And it's all because of what Jesus has done as our forever high priest, our perfect high priest. All right, that covers the passage. I want to go back and look at that verse 25 again. So let's look back at verse 25. Especially where it says that Jesus, as our high priest, it says, think about these words, always lives to make intercession. He always lives to make intercession for us, his people. Many of you read the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Well, in chapter 8 of that book, Ortland spends an entire chapter on this passage here in Hebrews 7.25 about Jesus making intercession for us. It's really good. I recommend it. So Jesus always lives to make intercession for us, his people. How does Jesus make intercession for us? Well, one, one way as a priest is a priest would offer sacrifices. And Jesus did that, right? Jesus interceded for us as our high priest. He laid down his own life as a sacrifice. But here we can see from verse 25, you see it's present tense. See, it says he, he's, he always lives to make intercession for us. It, it's ongoing. He's always doing this. And that means that Jesus is interceding for us, his people, right now. And that means a couple of things. One, it means that Jesus intercedes for us by purifying our prayers. Jesus purifies our prayers. Here's what I mean by that. is an illustration by a Puritan named Thomas Watson. And Watson actually may have gotten it from the illustration from an early church father, John Christostom. We don't know. But anyway... Listen to this. This is, this is how Jesus makes intercession for us by purifying our prayers. Watson uses this illustration. I'm going to paraphrase. Jesus' intercession takes away the sins of our prayers. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine a young boy who wants to give his father a birthday present. And the little boy doesn't have any money, so he decides he's going to give his father a bouquet of flowers. Okay, so the boy goes out into the garden or in the wild, and he gathers up some flowers, but he also gathers up a bunch of ugly weeds. And the bundle is mostly weeds, but there are some flowers in there as well. And then the little boy takes this big bundle of weeds and flowers, and he hands it to his mom. And what does the mom do? Does she immediately take this big bundle of weeds and flowers and give it to the father? No. No, she carefully picks out all the weeds out of the bundle. She removes all that is ugly so that all that remains are beautiful flowers. Then she now has this bouquet of beautiful flowers and she presents them to the father. And she says, this is a birthday gift from your child, okay? This is what Jesus does for us in interceding for us. He purifies our prayers. Because when we pray, we may not even know it, but when we pray, a lot of our prayers are filled with weeds, there's a lot of sinful motives in our prayers, and we may not even realize it. But Jesus, as our great high priest, intercedes for us by picking away the weeds. He removes the sins of our prayers, 
and presents nothing but flowers to the Father, which in our prayers are a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father. So Jesus purifies our prayers so that any sinfulness, any wickedness, any selfishness that stains our prayers, Jesus, as our intercessor, removes all those stains from our prayers. And again, he presents them to the Father in their purest and holiest form. It's really beautiful. And what that means for us is, think about this, that we can come before the throne of God with confidence, with boldness. When we pray, we don't have to be cautious and afraid that we're going to say something wrong. As Hebrews 4.16 says earlier in the book, it says, let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. So we can come before our Father in prayer boldly. We don't have to be timid because we know that Jesus, who always lives to make intercession for us, will remove the weeds from our prayers and present them to the Father so that they're beautiful and undefiled. So that's one way Jesus makes intercession for us, by purifying our prayers. Another way that Jesus makes intercession for us is this, is that Jesus himself prays for us. Jesus prays for us. And and just as a side note, almost everything you can find about Jesus being our high priest is right here in the book of Hebrews. And it's sad to me that the church oftentimes ignores this book because this is a huge massively important thing for us as believers to understand Jesus being our high priest. All right, so, so Jesus prays for us. Now, there is an allusion to this in Romans eight thirty four, and I think we may have the slide on it. Paul, Paul says this, that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is in, interceding for us. So we are told in Romans that Christ is interceding for us, continuous, ongoing thing. So think about this, if you've put your faith in Christ, that means that Jesus is praying for you without ceasing. Jesus is thinking about you and praying for you constantly. Now as mere humans, we can't do that, right? We can only think about one thing at a time. But Jesus, who is the infinite God, can think about every one of his people all the time. And he can pray for every one of us all the time. We can't comprehend this because we can't grasp infinity. But the fa- this blows me away. The Father and the Son are infinite and eternal. And they can have infinite communication about each one of their individual children, right? Millions of them all at the same time. So brother in Christ, sister in Christ, think about this. That Jesus is praying for you nonstop on a day-by-day basis. On an hour-by-hour basis, Jesus, our great high priest, is interceding for us by praying for us. And he never stops. So use your imagination. Picture Jesus. He's called our big brother. Jesus, our big brother, our Savior, but he's also our big brother, with a smile on his face, talking to God the Father about you. And the Father's not angry. The Father also loves you because the Father, for example, John 3, 16, for God the Father so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? So it's not like Jesus is nice and the Father's mean. No, they both have this love. Both pers- all three persons of the Trinity have this incomparable love for us as God's people. That means the Father and the Son are communicating with one another in love about what you need for your growth, what you need for holiness, what you need for the good of your soul. Jesus is praying for your protection. He's praying against our enemies, and we aren't even aware of it. So listen, church, that's going on right now. Jesus is praying for you because he always lives to make intercession for us. 
Louis Burkhoff said this in his systematic theology. I know I'm giving a lot of quotes, but I think we've got a slide for this. And I want you to just, as I walk through it, try to, try to follow along as I read it. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. And think about Jesus doing, is doing this all the time. He always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is infinitely more committed to us than we are to him. We're lazy. We're forgetful. Yesterday, I prayed for every WCC member, but I rarely do that, just being honest. But Jesus' intercession for us is ceaseless, it's fervent, and it's filled with passion. This should drive us close to our Savior, and it should comfort us in times of heartache and in times of trial. Last slide is a quote from Robert Murray McShane. I've mentioned this before. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. That's a fact, church. Jesus is praying for you right now, and he never ceases. Our Lord is so good. He loves us so much. Take comfort in him, church. Rejoice in him. Worship worship him and live for him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you for sending your son Jesus, not only to be our savior and king, but our faithful high priest who always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus, you're awesome. So glorious. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you intercede for each one of your people individually at all times. Father, thank you that you love us and you're in communication with your son all the time about us. Thank you, Jesus, that you care about us so much. You not only gave your life for us, you sustain us, you uphold us, and you pray for us and intercede for us constantly. And I do pray, Lord, that that would motivate us to live for you and get serious. And if there are folks in here who have not bowed the knee to you, Jesus, who have not put their faith in you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in their hearts They would see their need for a savior. They would see their need for a great high priest for you, Jesus. So for those of us who have put our faith in you, God, make us us grow in holiness and devotion to you through this fact. Let Let us grow in comfort that even as we go through trials and heartache, that you love us, you're praying for us, you're sovereign, you're you're sovereign over every detail in our lives. And as we talked about, we have eternity to look forward to. We have heaven to look forward to, the resurrection life to come. So may that be our focus, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for just caring about us. Thank you for being here with us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, it's now the time in our service when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We say this every week, but you don't have to be a member of Walton Community Church to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a family meal. And we, we don't also ask that if, if you have sin, you don't stay away from the table. You confess the sin. You acknowledge the sin. You receive forgiveness from Christ. Then you come to the table. 
We believe this is a means of grace where God meets, Christ meets with his people in a special way. And of course, we remember his broken body and shed blood for us as people. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Broken body for us. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Shed blood for us. He went to the tree for us, his people, and he loves us. And Paul writes, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming one day. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, again, thank you for offering your life as our substitute. On the cross, you took upon yourself the judgment that should have come to us, your people. You took our judgment, and then you gave us your righteousness. So now we can be, by faith, we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see our filth and sin and rebellion. He sees your beautiful righteousness. So we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you again for being our intercessor, for cleaning up our prayers, for praying for us. You're just so wonderful, Lord. And I pray that we would really have hearts that want to worship you. Thank you for being here. Just thank you for being here and caring about us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. We praise you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.